The scriptures scriptures enjoin us to sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So when we gather together and we proclaim in the way that we sing and what we sing that Jesus is Lord, it is meant to be an encouragement to us, to one another, which is why when we gather together we privilege the sound of congregational singing. You should hear people around you singing, some well, some poorly, but uh, it is a joyful sound to hear and to gather together with God's people for the singing of uh, uh, these truths that we hold. And now, as is our custom, we're going to turn our attention to the scriptures. So I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the Second Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. Of course, uh, we give ourselves over to the studying of scriptures as well. We sing, we give, we pray, we take the Lord's Supper, we read the scriptures. That's what we do when we gather together on Sunday mornings. The last time that we opened Second Samuel, which of course was just last week, we read the first half of the story of the fall of David. Uh, chapter 11 tells us how our great hero, David, the man after God's own heart, committed a series of horrific sins. If we trace what he did through the Ten Commandments, of course, he started with coveting, and it led to adultery, and his effort to cover the adultery, he lied and committed murder. Uh, and it looks like, because of the cover-up, as you read chapter 11, it looks like, at least, David has gotten uh, away with it until you read those last terrible words of chapter 11 that says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. John Piper says that's the greatest understatement in all of the Bible. Uh, We are in the midst of this story here in 2 Samuel, and it's written for people who are racked by guilt. Do you know anybody who's racked by guilt? Chuck Swindoll once wrote about a man who sent a letter to the IRS and enclosed a check, and he wrote the letter, and it said, Here is $150. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. (laughs) That's not what I'm talking about. It's not the sort of guilt I'm thinking about. These, These chapters are for people who are painfully aware of the gap between what they know the Bible calls them to do and the lives they actually live. That gap. You may not reach the same heights that David did, nor you may you reach the same depths that David did. Who, who here has the right, has the authority to command a soldier to be killed? But, but we're still aware of this gap. D- David wrote about what this gap is like and what it feels like. He wrote about it in Psalm 32. He, he says it's like, like digging a hole on a humid July afternoon. Um, Look what it says in Psalm 32. David said this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. And look what he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. How aware are you of this gap? Now, in a certain sense, of course, uh, the Bible tells us that everyone should feel this gap. Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 John 1, we just read it a minute ago. If you say that there is no gap, if you say that you have not sinned, you're deceived. 
You're calling God a liar, actually. David's trouble with this gap is compounded by two problems. On the one hand, it's compounded by the fact that David's predecessor, Saul, the guy who had been king before him, had sinned. There had been this gap in his life. And it had cost Saul his kingdom and his dynasty. What's going to happen to David? It's also compounded by the fact that David was the the recipient of a great deal of promises from God. God had promised David an eternal destiny. And and God had said to David, one of your sons is going to rule forever. And this son is going to be so close to God that he's going to be called God's son too. He's going to be David's son and God's son. So since God knows about what David has done, what is he going to do? What does God do to you? Because God knows about the gap in your life too. What I want to do is I want to walk through this text this morning and we're going to talk about how God responded to David. So there's David's sin in chapter 11 and then in chapter 12 we have God's response and along with that we have David's response to God. And I want to look at what God does with and to and for David. And along the way, I want to, we're going to talk about two things, two tracks here. What did God do and how did David respond? How does God treat or what does God do in the face of the grievous sin of his people and how should his people respond? So uh, I have four ways that God responds and each one is going to be God did this and so you should do this. And we're going to take these from 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's a simple pattern. I'm sure you'll see it as we go along. Do you feel the gap here this morning? So here's what to do. Uh, Number one, what does God do? God confronts David And so you should listen. God confronts, and so you should listen. Let's start reading in chapter 12. Actually, I'm going to read three verses, three words of chapter 12. It begins, four words, the Lord sent Nathan. Now, do you remember that word sent? It's so important. It's actually very important in chapter 11. The word sent is the key word in chapter 11 because David's crime in chapter 11 is not just a crime of passion. It is a crime of power. And the word sent talks about David's power. He sends for Bathsheba. He sends for Uriah. He sends messengers. He sends Uriah back with the the terrible message of his own death. David is, is not just committing a, uh, a sin of passion, but a sin of power gone awry. He sends and sends and sends because he's the king. And now chapter 12 starts, the Lord sent. Ah. The Lord sent Nathan to David to tell him a story. It wouldn't be unusual for the king to weigh in on uh, judicial matters, and I imagine that often the prophets could bring to the king certain cases that they had heard of that, that needed the king to intervene, and, and uh, Nathan comes with one of these stories. The way it's written, David must have soon figured out that it's a, a parable. There's words and vocabulary there that indicate that it's more of a parable than a true story, but David gets sucked into the story because that's what good stories do. All right, let's, let's read the story. The Lord sent Nathan to David, verse 1. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food 
drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, do you remember a few weeks ago, I I was joking from the pulpit, and I said, you should stop letting your dog sleep with you in your bed. I, I was kidding. I don't care where your dog sleeps, right? Maybe I spoke too soon. Here's a story in the Bible about a guy who lets his sheep into his bed. Whew. Actually, Nathan is setting David up. I don't know if, if David doesn't seem to realize it. It says, the text says, uh, the sheep is like a daughter to him. The Hebrew word for daughter is bet. So uh, when you, as a, a Jewish boy, become uh, at age 12, you have a bar mitzvah, bar son. You become a son of the covenant is what that is. Bar mitzvah, that's what it means. Girls have a bet mitzvah. You become a daughter of the covenant. Bet is the Hebrew word for daughter. It's also the first syllable in Bathsheba's name. So this daughter is like a little Beth. To, uh, this sheep is like a little Beth to him. Verse 4. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. Now, why is David so angry? Why is he so angry? What the rich man did in this story is not a capital offense. It's bad, but it's not a capital crime. And, and why, why can't David see through Nathan's story? It's, it's hardly obscure. Sure, he has to be able to understand that he himself is in this story. If I wanted to play the role of psychotherapist this morning, some people have, and they suggest that David's anger, in fact, is driven by his subconscious sense of guilt, that he's, he's angry at anybody who would be guilty of doing such a terrible thing. Chiefly, he's angry at himself. In verse 6, he pronounces this more measured judgment. It's in keeping, what he says in verse 6 is in keeping with Exodus 22.1. Listen to what Exodus 22.1 says. Whoever steals an ox or sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. That will become important later. Four sheep for the sheep. Verse 6. David says, he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now, why the story? David was not prepared to listen to the prophet, but now he is prepared. Nathan has pumped him up with anger and then he takes this sword and pierces it and pops David's anger You are the man. You are the man. And now he's ready to listen. Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. 
Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. With this confrontation, I think there is a key to describe God's interaction with his people. So in the background, did you notice this? In the background of David's sin, one of the things that makes it so repellent is God's mercy to David. The blessings that he has extended to him. Did you notice that? You showed contempt for my name, even though I, had, I brought you from the uh, sheep uh, pasture and made you king. And I protected you from Saul. And I gave you the whole nation. I did all of these things for you, and you have shown contempt for my name. Now... Why didn't Nathan appeal to God's wrath? Think about this, how different it would be if if Nathan had said to David, um, you have shown contempt for the Lord even though God is the one who removed Saul from the throne when he disobeyed. And even though God is the one who took Hophni and Phinehas and, and, uh, and killed them when they showed contempt for my name. And even though God is the one who destroyed uh, Uzzah when he reached out and touched the ark. You see the difference? God could have in this passage appealed to all of his judgment and instead he appeals to David on the basis of his mercy. David's sin is most heinous against the background of God's merciful blessings to him. Now why is that? I think there's a very important lesson. It applies all the way across the pages of Scripture, all the way across the ages. Here's the lesson. If you will not treasure God for his mercy... For the sake of his mercy, you will suffer under the weight of his justice. If you will not treasure God and his word for the sake of his mercy, you will suffer under the weight of his justice. I think this is a, a, a truth that's all the way through scripture. Remember often with the nation of Israel, when, when God had rescued them from Egypt and they lived in their, their rebellion against him, God says to them, I rescued you from Egypt. I made you my own people. I gave you my covenant. I have done all of these blessings for him. And now you are disregarding, you're showing contempt for me. He, he reminds them of his blessings all the time. And then in the New Testament, there's this verse that, we, that is very familiar to us, Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Paul urges us as followers of Jesus to offer our lives as sacrifices to him, not because God is going to get us if we don't, but because of all that he has done for us in the past. You see that? The goal of the scriptures, when it speaks to us of the mercy of God and the blessings of God, is to invite you, to call you, to treasure God because of his mercies. Uh, This is God's orientation toward us. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Romans 2.4 says that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. If you're here this morning and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, this passage can function in your life as both an invitation and a warning. The invitation is to respond to God's mercy. 
His mercy that it is extended to us through Christ Jesus. The Bible diagnoses all of us as dead, spiritually dead in our guilt before God. But because of His great mercy, because God is rich in mercy, He rescued us through the Lord Jesus. He died on the cross as our substitute. He paid the penalty for our sin. He rose again. And the Bible offers forgiveness and life to all those who will turn to Him and trust in Him in dependent faith, recognizing the problem, that is your sin, and God's solution, the Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the invitation that is good news. There's good news. I have good news for you. God is merciful and offers forgiveness through His Son. That's the good news. That's the invitation of the Scriptures. It's an invitation that we extend in all of our ministries. Here's the warning, though. If you will not treasure God and His Word for His mercy, you will suffer under the weight of His justice. That's the warning. So God confronts David. He has... David has treasured his own pleasure and he's shown contempt for God. And, and when God confronts you, you should listen. This afternoon when we meet at 1.30, we're going to read the church covenant. And when I go through the church covenant, sometimes in membership classes, uh, we, we read through it or look at parts of it. And I, I say to the people that are gathered there, and I say, now, which parts of this do you think are easiest to fulfill the church covenant? And we talk a couple lines. Which parts of this do you think are the most difficult? Do you think that you will be, have the most challenge in, in uh, fulfilling? And many people say this line, we will admonish one and rebuke one another as occasion may require. Is there anybody who likes that? You should be leery of the people who feel called to the ministry of rebuking. Okay, that's, you should be anxious about them, Right? One of the ways, though, that God confronts people is through His people. Will you listen? Bruce Shelley wrote a biography about of Vernon Grounds. Vernon Grounds was a, a seminary teacher. He was the president of a seminary. He used to work out in his free time at a gym in Denver. And when he was at the gym, he met this man, a young man named Marty, who was a lawyer. And uh, they, they developed some sort of a friendship. And Marty's marriage was crumbling. It was falling apart. It got so bad that one day he decided to sit down with Vernon and ask him for some advice. So uh, they met for coffee after they had been at the gym. And, and Vernon said, okay, let's, let's make a list of your options here right now. So uh, Marty got out a pen and a piece of paper. They started writing down. Uh, Vernon said, number one, you could stay in the marriage. Number two, you can separate temporarily. Number three, you can divorce. Marty was in a desperate condition, so Vernon Ground said, you should add number four, suicide. And before Marty had a chance to object, he said, and of course add number five, murder. And Marty said, well, no, 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 no. And, and, and Vernon said, what? You're a defense attorney. You mean to tell me that you can't think of anybody that you might call who might have a connection with someone who would kill your wife for money? Marty said, immediately three names came to mind. Marty said, I was in need of a serious dose of reality and Vernon knew how to deliver it. Uh, Vernon, they, they 
conversation continued. He said, can we agree that as Christians, murder is not a viable option? Marty said, oh, yeah, yeah, we can agree on that. And and can we agree that self-murder, suicide is not an option either? Let's talk about the other options. What do you do when someone delivers you a serious dose of reality? I hope that I am increasingly easy to admonish. I'm not always easy to it. I hope that I am increasingly easy to admonish. Godly people are easily encouraged and they're easily admonished. When God confronts, will you listen? You should listen. All right, let's move on. Number two here. God forgives and so you should confess. God forgives and so you should confess. Look at verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Here it is, these six words in this passage. One of the key questions in the book of Samuel is, what is the difference between the first king Saul and David? When Saul sins and is confronted by the prophet, why does he lose his dynasty and his kingdom and David doesn't? And it's answered by these six words when David says, I have sinned against the Lord. It's not profound. It's not really long. But notice what's not here in this. David doesn't make any excuses. David doesn't blame anyone. David doesn't minimize his sin. Aren't those, isn't that our strategy when we're confronted? I was really tired. We make excuses. I was really tired. Uh, I'm really stressed. I'm lonely. I'm depressed. Or we blame other people. I wouldn't have done it, but he just makes me so mad. Right? Or we minimize our sin. You know, it's not really that big a deal. Other people do it. John Ensor, when he was a teenager, he went to the store to buy a hat. He had the money. He knew what he wanted. And uh, he went to the store and uh, he found a hat and he decided in a split second there, he thought to himself, why should I pay for this when I could just take it and walk out? So he tried. As he was walking out the door, uh, the manager stopped him and confronted him about it. And the manager said, he recognizes just a confused teenager, He said to him, look, you go home, you tell your parents what you've done. If your dad calls me tonight and talks to me about it, uh, I won't call the police. But if I don't hear from your dad tonight, I'm calling the police tomorrow morning. So he went home and with shame, he he told his parents what he'd done. And even worse, his 18-year-old sister heard what he had done. And she said, this is so embarrassing. I've got a brother who's a thief. John Ensor says, she called me a thief. A thief. But becoming what we are ashamed of, here, this is what he writes, but becoming ashamed of what we are as a result of what we do is a good thing and a necessary part of getting real about guilt. If you commit adultery, you are an adulterer. If you lie, you become a liar. I stole and had become a thief. It led me to my room, weeping and ashamed of myself. But that was good, painful, but good. How could David, a man after God's own heart, do what he did in chapter 11? This coveting, this murder, this adultery. How could he do this? Well, uh, he is a man after God's own heart, and it's revealed in how he responds when he's confronted. David doesn't deny it. He repents. He confesses. 
And in response, Nathan says, The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. He deserved to die. When Nathan told that story about the rich man and the sheep, David was so mad, that guy deserved to die. He was going to have no pity, right? God is more merciful to David than David is to that rich man in Nathan's story. Your sins are taken away, he says. You know, the Bible uses lots of different images. We, we read a couple of them even this morning. Images for how God, what God does with our sin. He washes them away. He covers them, the Bible says. He throws them into the depths of the sea. Here, it's this spatial image. He, he carries it away. He, he takes it away from us. It makes me think of sitting in a, a restaurant and you've eaten dinner and there's a dirty plate in front of you and a waitress comes and she, she takes it away. He takes it away. It's one of the joys of eating in a restaurant. You, you know, the dirty dishes just disappear. They go away. And, and God has taken away your sin. This is what the Lord does. He does this with Nathan. Uh, Nathan says this to David, announces this, pronounces this over him with, without regard to David's uh, promises to do better, without regard to David's rituals. He doesn't even offer a sacrifice here without regard to David's uh, penance or what he, what he says he's going to do in the future, the Lord has taken away your sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, brothers and sisters, it is because God forgives that we confess our sins to Him. Now let's move on here. Number three. Here's the third way God responds. God disciplines and so you should submit. God disciplines and so you should submit. This is the longest part of the story. Um, You'll be tempted to think that this is a contradiction to forgiveness and when we talk about consequences that this is a contradiction to forgiveness, but it's not. Bob Covey told me this week that Chuck Swindoll is preaching on this passage this past week, which is great news. That's what every pastor wants to hear, that Chuck Swindoll is preaching on the same passage that you are on Sunday. That was great news. Um, Bob quoted uh, Chuck Swindoll with a line that I thought was original to me, but I must have stolen it from Chuck Swindoll several years ago. Here is what I said, and Chuck Swindoll agrees with me. He said, (laughs) we said, all sins are forgivable, not all consequences are erasable. All sins are forgivable, not all consequences are erasable. Why are there consequences? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, to demonstrate the evil of sin. There are consequences to demonstrate the evil of sin. Secondly, to show that God does not take sin lightly. To show that God does not take sin lightly. And third, to sanctify forgiven sinners. To sanctify forgiven sinners. Do you remember what Hebrews 12 says? God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I'll give you an illustration. Bob Deffenbaugh used to teach sixth grade. It was a long time ago because in his sixth grade classroom, there was corporal punishment. 
Bob Deffenbaugh says you could see in the classroom one of the boys would break one of the rules or he'd break enough rules over time. It was a class just with boys. He, he would take the offender out into the hall. And I'd be out in the hall and he said, I always made sure the door was open so that every boy in that room could hear the whistle of the paddle and the thump on the rump. <laughs> and, and that chastised young man walked back into that classroom. He was humbled and he was red in the face and elsewhere. See, the boys got the lesson. You cannot get away with doing this. Evil is evil and there will be consequences. It was a lesson to all of them. He, uh, Bob Diffenbaugh said, it was so different when I started teaching. I used to, when I first started, I used to send people to the principal's office, but the principal was a softy. And he would, he would sit them down across from his desk and he would say, oh, young man, go back to class and try to do better and everybody who came back from the principal's office walked into that room with a swagger because they got away with it. And it didn't matter. <laughs> Bob Deffenbaugh said, I stopped sending them to the principal's office. Here's what the adultery and murder cost David. We, we read some of this already. It starts in verse 10. The sword will never depart from your house. The sword will never depart from your house. I wonder, some people, uh, this is suggested to me in a, in a commentary I read. So David was at home in the beginning of chapter 11 when all of his troops were out to battle. They were out fighting and he was at home. And, and the su- suggestion is that maybe David stayed home because he just wanted a little peace and quiet. And where are you going to get peace and quiet but at home? Except now the discipline is the sword is never going to leave your house. Your home is not going to be the place of refuge you thought it would be. And then uh, there is this odd uh, condemnation that that, that happens. Um, Well, when David said to to Nathan about the sheep and the fourfold, remember I talked about this, this man must pay fourfold for the sheep. You know what's going to happen in the unfolding chapters that are going to come? Four of David's sons are going to die young. The son of Bathsheba, Amnon, Absalom, and in 1 Kings, Adonijah. He must pay fourfold, David says. And, and David appears to. There's a strange uh, condemnation in verses, uh, judgment in, in verses 11 and 12 about how one of his, somebody from his own household is going to sleep publicly with his wives. We'll get to that. It will happen in these coming chapters. Uh, I'll stop here. I just want to make a, a, a note about next week. It relates here to this a little bit. Next week, we're going to be talking about that terrible story with Amnon and Tamar. Um, it is good. Children's Choir will meet next week, so all of the children will not be here next week when we talk about that terrible story. Uh, it is not going to be a graphic sermon, but the story itself is horrible. So you just keep that in mind as parents um, for next week. Just an aside, all right? So, uh, discipline. We, we, we've talked about this, uh, the, uh, the discipline. Now it's going to continue. The discipline's going to be worse. Verse 14. Look what it says. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. 
David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, well, the child was still living. He wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him that the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked? Yes, he replied, the child is dead. Does anyone struggle with this passage? Let's be clear, very clear about what, happening, what is happening here. The Bible is not talking about some mysterious disease that the child has. This, the passage is very specific. It says in verse 15, God struck the child. And he suffered for seven days, and then he died. Why the baby and not David? I have that question. I imagine that David asked that same question. Uh, We remember as we read this passage that God is the author of life and death, and he does not owe any human being. He doesn't owe any human being, even the cute ones, even the helpless ones, even the good ones. He doesn't owe them anything. If you're 19 years old, God does not owe you a 20th birthday. If you're 4 years old, God doesn't owe you a 5th birthday. He's the author of life. He gives and takes as, as, according to His will. But then, there's Deuteronomy 24:16. Look what it says. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin, except in 2 Samuel 12, apparently. Why? I think that this specific form of discipline that David has experiences has to do with the promise that God had made back in chapter 7. Do you remember the promise? God had told David he would build him a house, and now his house is threatened. And God had made a promise to David about his son, and now his son is taken away. The baby lingered for seven days then died. Seven days is the period of mourning. Seven days is the period of time that Bathsheba mourned for her husband Uriah. And it is one day less than circumcision. Hebrew boys were circumcised and often named on day eight. But this baby never becomes part of the covenant community and he remains nameless in the Bible. So David fasts in response to this. He prays. Here's a sign of his repentance. He fasts for a week. This intense, he, he pleads for God, for, with God for the baby's life. The, the vocabulary. So in chapter 11, David lays with Bathsheba. In chapter 12, David lays before the Lord in, in, in pleading. Maybe, maybe God will relent. Now, why did David do this? Nathan had said, The baby is going to die. Why did David then go and pray? Why did he do that? Well, look at what Jeremiah 18 says. I think I wrote Jeremiah 18 down for you, verses 7 and 8. Yeah, there it is. It says, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. Maybe, 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 just maybe God will relent. And then the baby dies and he does something strange. It confounds his staff. 
He, he doesn't go into mourning. He actually comes out of it. At the moment that they are dressing his baby and preparing his baby for burial, David is washing himself and, and getting dressed and, and eating. Now, why? I want to suggest to you this is an act of submission on David's part to God's will. Look at verse 20. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, he put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house and at his request they served him food and he ate. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. How does a man after God's own heart respond when experiencing discipline from God? He worships. There's a sense in which David here is assured if the Lord's word of discipline has come true and the baby has died, then God's word of mercy and forgiveness can be trusted too. If Nathan says your son will die and the son dies, when Nathan says the Lord has forgiven you, that's true too. See, some of you with a very tender conscience, some of you have a very tender conscience in the room and when when you pick up the scriptures and you hear the Bible say to you, Sinner! You feel that very keenly, but you are very slow to believe when God says to you, forgiveness, forgiveness. Now, there's a tangent that we need to go on that I don't really have time to deal with, but we're going to anyway. And the tangent has to do with what David says about the baby when he says, I will go to him. What does this mean? Well, There is a question that has been debated often in dorm rooms of Bible colleges and seminaries. Those theological eggheads throw around ideas. And there's a question that has been asked painfully in hospitals by grieving parents. What is the eternal destiny of those who die as infants? What happens to them? They're human beings. They're sinners by nature. What happens to them? We could easily expand the question, what about miscarriages or babies who are aborted? What happens to them? If life begins at conception, what happens to those babies who then are destroyed? In which case, we're now talking about millions and millions of babies. Well, the Bible doesn't answer our questions directly that we ask about that. But this verse, I will go to him, is used in the debate. Some people say that David is speaking about death, that he's just talking about death. The baby is dead and and in the ground and he's going in the grave and David's going to go in the grave too. But David, uh, David says, I will go to him in order to comfort himself, right? In order to console himself. That's why he says this. Can I bring him back again? No, you can't bring him back again. The baby is dead. But he comforts himself. I will go to him. 
So I don't think he's merely describing their, their, their uh, common destiny of death. That's not very comforting. It's not comforting to say, you know, the baby is in lot 275 at the Millersville Mennonite Cemetery, but I'll be in lot 276, and that makes me feel a lot better. That does not seem comforting, I don't think. David is, is comfort. He's encouraged by this. I will go to him. Well, where is David going? Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Bible doesn't speak to this issue directly. We have all kinds of questions. So again, those theological nerds who are in their dorm rooms, this is the type of thing that they stay up late at night talking about. Uh, They say, well, how is it possible that these babies conceived sinfully with sin nature, how can it be that they could be in God's presence, be forgiven? Uh, Well, Christ's death in some way must be applied to them, but it's not applied to them by their own faith, so then how is it that they can be there? I don't know the answer to that question. But thankfully, we're out of time for this issue. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, it's, it's even better. <laughs> Jedediah, loved by the Lord. God restores. Then uh, verse 26, we have the story, David the conquering hero, God restores. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise I will take the city and it will be named after me. So David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. David took the crown from their king's head and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent of gold, 75 pounds. And it was set with precious stones. David took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and with iron picks and axes, and he made them work at brick-making. David did this all to the Ammonite towns, did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then he and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. They've re- things have returned as much as they can to normal, even somewhat better than normal. He's got a 75-pound gold crown. How do you ever wear that? I'm not going to tie your shoes while you're wearing that crown. It was crazy hat night at Awana on Wednesday. There were no 75-pound hats. <laughs> Grace to David, it extends beyond the boundaries of the devastation that he created. God's grace extends beyond the boundaries of the devastation that you can create. It's wider It's broader, it's deeper, it's higher, it's restorative, it brings life, it brings love. The road ahead for David is going to be really hard. We're going to see that. It's going to be really hard. His troubles are not over, but God is going to sustain him. The promise that he made to him is going to last. And so the offer is extended to all of you. Do you feel the pressures of the gap? The gap between what God has called you to do and how you actually live. The good news is that that God confronts and He forgives and He disciplines and He restores. And so the invitation of the Scripture is for you to listen and to confess and to submit and to rejoice. There's a story told that circulated around Spain for quite some time about a 
father and son that had had a terrible conflict and the son ran away from home. His father searched for him for months and months. He couldn't find him. Finally, he took out an advertisement in a Madrid newspaper and the advertisement in the newspaper said, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. And on that Saturday, 800 Pacos showed up. 800 people looking for forgiveness and love from their fathers. Brothers and sisters, it's my privilege to announce to you the truth. God forgives sinners. Won't you receive the grace of the Almighty God? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to your kindness to us to tell us this story about David. Oh, he blew it. It's terrible. And, and Father, we, we blow it too. We are thankful to you for your mercy in his life. We're thankful to you that he found out and he wrote, Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. And, and we can sing that song too and celebrate that truth too. We read it in First John. We see it in the, in the story. You're faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We read it in Hebrews and, and we see it in Second in Samuel. You are a father, a good father who disciplines us for our good and, and you disciplined David. Oh, the road will be hard. We see these stories, these truths take place in David's life. Now we pray that you would give us by faith the eyes to see how you work these things out for us, in us, and through us too. It is, it is good news that God forgives sinners. Make us quick to confess and to turn. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.